Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth and Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Youth and Education podcast. My name's Aisha and I am speaking to Dr. Sam Bars in this episode. We're doing a research roundup, which we haven't done for some time. In this episode, there were three pieces of research that we discussed. One of them was capturing the voices of um, children who have an education healthcare plan, which would be of real interest to anybody who um, teaches or is in charge of young people with SEND needs. We also spoke about uh, a report looking at the mental health of children and young people in England, which is something I have a particular interest in. But also, we're currently writing a book at LKM Co, and that's my chapter. And the final one was an interesting one about um, how key stage one assessments are reported in primary schools. There is one bit later on in the podcast where Sam and I can't remember with a assessments at the end of key stage two are teacher assessed or not so just for information i thought i should add so just to clarify pupils take national curriculum assessments in year six at the end of key stage two at this point they take tests which some people probably still call sats in reading maths and also grammar punctuation and spelling now those tests are taken but they also receive a teacher assessment in reading, writing, maths and science, which is probably why Sam and I were both a bit confused as to whether they did have a teacher assessment or not. So that's just to clarify, and for the primary school teachers uh, out there who are listening to us. Right, let's delve in. LKM co-believe society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? <laughs> Alright, uh, Dr Sambars, how are you today? Good thanks Aisha, how are you? I'm good, I'm uh, loving the fact that you're looking smart in your shirt, which I commented on earlier. No one else noticed. No, there weren't that many comments, were there really? So I probably won't, probably won't bother doing it again, but never mind. You've got to try sometimes, haven't you? <laughs> Do it again next year. Just yeah. Once a year. <laughs> it's a little bit uh, depressing when you wear a shirt and people comment or, or you... Yeah. Um, to be fair, I always notice these things, right? Yeah. I always first notice if someone's made a bit... Did you make an effort? effort? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's it appreciated. Credit. It's much appreciated. Yeah, it is. Thank you. So today we're talking about... Um, a load of interesting research that you come across mm. uh, and I'm keen to learn about. So a research roundup. The first one is about capturing the voices of children in education, health and health and care plans. Yeah. Um, so tell me, why did you choose this and what jumped out for you? So this is one, this was published back in April this year. Um, so it's a relatively recent bit of research, but it's not fresh off the press. Um, this one came to our attention as a team um, when Bart, who within our team does quite a lot on SEND, um, does a lot of research in that area and is a real expert, uh, he was looking through this report, which is about the voices of children in the HC plans. Um, and he was interested in a particular aspect of the methodology, and this is what he flagged to the rest of the team and the way that they had or hadn't got consent from young people, so kids under the age of 16, 
to use what they had written or what was in section A of their plans, which is where the voice of young people is now supposed to come through. So I guess a bit of context, which Bart would know better than I do, but um, about four years ago, um, there was a new SEND framework introduced, and as part of that, education, health and care plans now have to contain the voices of the young people that they refer to, so the young person's perspective um, on their assets and their needs comes across. Um, and there's more and more research now, this being one, one of those pieces of research, looking at what, um, what is contained in young people's voices there. Um, and the research, this piece of research has lots of interesting things to say about actually whether it looks like it is young people's voices or just the voices of adults kind of purporting to be young people or kind of hearing young people. I'm doing air quotes here, but they, they, they make quite a strong case in this piece of research that, for instance, there are... Um, there are lots of you can look through lots of EHCPs and find young people who for instance got a state of kind of developmental delay and are age quite young where something is written in the first person but clearly using terminology or language that's that unlikely them. to be their own it's just really clear that it's not the young person's voice basically so there's lots of interesting stuff in this piece of research but we were really interested um a little bit concerned, if I'm honest, about how they'd gone around getting consent. So they'd got consent from parents to use these EHCPs as a source of data for their research. Um, and they had got the parental consent for any young people under the age of 16 to use those plans, but they hadn't got the consent of young people themselves. And I thought that was quite interesting. Um, it's not something that we would do if we wanted to do research with young people under the age of 16 we would seek parental consent um, but we'd also seek the consent of the young person themselves yeah which sounds reasonable to do yeah it's um it's what you should do and also it's particularly puzzling for a piece of research which is about the voices of young people and whether they're being fa fairly represented i thought it was um you know, if I understand it rightly, they didn't get consent from young people under the age of 16 to oh, use Oh, are you talking about the research itself? This piece of research? Didn't get the consent of young people? No. Okay, no, that's odd. And that's, <laughs> we, you know, we triple-checked, because sometimes these things are mentioned elsewhere or in an appendix or another part of the methodology. Yeah. But it wasn't there. So it's a really, in one level, a really minor point of detail, but I think it's really important. It's quite a big point. Yeah, in terms of data and ethics and the way you do research, it's important. But particularly when you're talking about a piece of research which is looking at the voices of young people and how they're often marginalised or not present at all. Um, do you think, so can you give a bit of context for people who aren't familiar mm. with this, uh, what types of young people and children would have um, an EHCP? This one's on the SEND, they... They usually have some kind of additional needs, don't they? Yes. Okay, because I'm just thinking, yeah. um, you know, these are already fairly vulnerable young people. Yeah. Um, so that's just, I'm just wondering. Yeah. No, absolutely. So it's it's a group of young. So until until four years ago, when you're drawing up a plan with a young person about any additional support they might require um, for a, a loan disability or a physical disability then you wouldn't necessarily have to capture their voice or their perspective in the plan that you drew up. Yeah, because like, who cares for how it affects them, right? Right, well, <laughs> you know, officially, until recently, that was the understanding, that was the line. And now, you know, we've we finally moved on in, our, in the way that we do this, and we do now capture young people's voices, or we think it's important to. But this research is showing that often we're, we're not really. 
we're sort of paying lip service to it. Um, and yeah, so you're talking about a group of young people who are still marginalised within the education system in terms of how they do at school and their outcomes later in life. Um, they're less likely to do well, less likely to make the kind of transitions that they, they can and should and that we should, we should be supporting them to. Um, so it's, yeah, it's interesting to see this piece of research not gaining their consent to use their, their data in this way. So can you think of any reasons, first of all, why it is that schools and other institutions might not be fully getting young people's views? when they're doing the EHCP? Like, was there any um, kind of speculation as to why that might be in, in the research? No, so this, this research was particularly valuable in flagging firstly, I think for me the headline finding really is that young people's views are being reported but whether they're actually being heard or not is, is another thing. Um, also, not many of the plans explain the method through which the young person's voice was, was heard um, and I think that's something that people should should be more more aware of. Mm. There are various different ways in which you can kind of get someone's view on something and some are more robust than others or some are more thorough than others. So how would, you know, what would you advise or what kind of things might... Because we often get young people's views about things yeah. and include it in our research and do it in a way that really does capture their voice. Mm. So, you know, what could we... Um, suggest might be ways that schools might do it for schools who don't already do it? Well, I think it's going to vary a lot depending on the young person that you're... Um, that you're drawing up a plan with, um, so I, you know, I really couldn't say. But I think if I, really it's gonna it's gonna vary a lot from young person to young person. But there are more or less kind of participatory techniques that you can use. For instance, you know, having a two minute chat with a young person about their perspective on things they might need support with, or um, they is going to be very different to, for instance, spending an hour using a variety of tools to get them to think about. To think about that, um, so I mean, just the amount of time alone is is one. Of the, this isn't this isn't something that really that you can kind of explore lightly. These plans can have quite a fundamental impacts on the resources that that flow towards young people, the yeah. kind of support they can they can receive. Um, yeah, I wonder if some of the you know because of the nature of some of the young people, uh, maybe they couldn't write. The, the quickest way would be to ask someone something and get them to write it down. Right, that would be the most uh, least. Mm. labour intensive way mm. but um, some of the young people because of their age or because yeah. of their particular needs may not actually be able to access something in that way mm. um, so you know if I'm being generous it might be that some teachers might be talking to them about their views and then they've rephrased and paraphrased what the young person said yeah. in a way that they feel is true to what they said mm. um, although it's not what they actually said mm. um, so there are all sorts of nuances aren't there definitely and we know that the way that young people you know, the way that anyone reports a, a perspective on something but particularly young people um, can shift dramatically depending on who they're talking to in the forum you know, for instance if you were to have this conversation with a young person in a school setting, you might get a very different response to if it was outside of school, um, with a teacher or with you know a member of non-teaching staff. So, it's or even with another young person. With another young person, exactly. If, as part of a group discussion, you often get um, a set of initial responses, and then after half an hour or so, young people will start to then talk about, or they might reframe their perspectives on something like their own disability. Um, we know that that's the case, and that can be a really fruitful process to go through. Obviously, it's far more labour-intensive, but if these plans are meant to be a step towards genuinely hearing young people's voices, then at the very least it would be nice to see more than, was it, 17% of plans 
um, you know, less than a fifth reporting, at least in a word or two, what methods they use to, to hear young people. And what was interesting is that actually mainstream schools were more likely than special schools to, to describe the methods that they used um, to, to hear young people's voices, which is potentially surprising. Um, yeah, it's quite surprising. I wonder if it's because, you know, sometimes when you're so used to doing something that it's so obvious to you that you don't write it down. Yeah. I wonder if that's part of the yeah. issue with, with um, special schools, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, that's really plausible. Mm. Okay, so um, we've discussed the ethical reservations with regards to the actual methodology of the report itself. <laughs> so it might be worth... Um, we were surprised, shall we say? <laughs> it was surprising, yeah. yeah, and I think we're fairly representing it. Um, we, you know, we, like I said, we, we kind of triple-checked because we were quite surprised. Um, so it's... Yeah, it's an interesting one from that point of view. Mm, and you've, um, kind of in our notes, we we're talking about the variability of the quality of methods that have been used. So mm. talk a bit, little, little bit about that. The, yeah. What do you mean by the quality of the methods? That people use to talk to young people. Yeah, to capture their views. Yeah, well, we just don't know. I mean, there's this research flags that we just don't know often when young people are part of a, any kind of process of consultation. Um, that can mean so many different things. I think what this research flags is that we need to... We need to be far more specific when we're talking about, oh, you know, we've consulted with a young person or we've spoken to a young person or what have you actually, you know, how long did you speak to them for? Did you speak to them multiple times or just once? Who spoke to them? What setting were you in? Were there other young people present? Um, how long have you known that young person for? All these kinds of things. And who wrote it up? Did you check it with them after you'd written it up that it was a fair representation of what they'd said? Um, all of these things should be fairly standard, I think, as part of this framework, as part of the process of drawing up one of these plans. Um, but apparently at the moment it's, it's not and there's a huge amount of variability I think that one's really important the kind of did you check this is a fair representation of what the person said yeah you know, um, there are things that I know in our work here that we definitely do that um, at times so it's kind of you know something's going to go we check that people this is especially for contentious potentially contentious things it's kind mm. of you have this is a representation of what you said, yeah. For example, on and as you said, people have release forms and all that kind of thing. So right. I understand our type of research is a very different kind of thing, mm. um, and there are implications with regards to time and resource in terms of man and woman power. Mm. But yeah, there are definitely considerations considering we're talking about vulnerable young people as yeah. it is. Right. Um, so uh, before we spoke about this, I spoke to a friend of mine who's the same co, and she was saying that she feels that actually lots and lots of places don't really follow the proper guidelines for what you really ought to do mm. when you're compiling these, which is kind of a shame. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there, there wasn't anything that I mentioned to her that we were going to talk about. She said, oh, no, that's definitely not true. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah. Mm. That's kind of her observation of things as well. Right. Which is kind of a shame, really. Yeah, mm. it is. And I think sometimes with a new, any kind of new system or process, things can improve over time but in other cases the, the, the culture is set early on and it might be that this is you know if this is how um, these sections of the plans are currently drawn up then it could be that that beds in and this is how you know people continue to do them which I don't think is, is satisfactory really. No not really. Um, okay so second report is about mental health of children and young people in England. Mm. Uh, so this is a survey of over of a large survey of over 9,000 young people. Um, tell us what kind of caught your eye about this, Sam. So I was interested in this one because it's not a very regularly published report. So I think the last time um, the NHS conducted this survey and reported 
um, was at least a decade ago. Mm. Um, and it's, it's not the first report to look into the mental health of young people. Um, and we blogged a few months ago on the Children's Society's Good Childhood Report, which is an annual report on young people's um, mental health and well-being. Um, this was a slightly different, I suppose, more medical take on things. And it partly raises interesting questions for me about how we understand for instance, things like well-being as opposed to mental health, whether they are the same thing. Yeah, what's um, a, what do you feel about that? Because I sometimes... I sometimes get a bit annoyed... Not annoyed, that's a strong word. Um, I don't believe well-being... Approaches to well-being are the same as when you're talking about people with mental ill health. Like, I, I sometimes wonder mm. if some of the things that people talk about with regards to well-being, which is really important, mm. could make people who are actually mentally ill feel worse in terms of like they might try those things and it doesn't work mm. because they have a mental illness you know yeah yeah that's I think that's broadly speaking where my understand my understanding came from um, and actually the more I looked this is one of those reports that prompted me to want to read more into it because I didn't have a clear distinction in my mind between some key terms about kind of mental ill health poor well-being mental disorders because reading through this report for instance using terms like mental disorder which I don't come across much when I'm reading what I tend to read which is I suppose more reports about well-being um, you know the word disorder is for me quite a clinical term that we you know you wouldn't uh, wouldn't use a great deal in the kind of research that I do um, but there weren't really clear distinctions between them this report was um, was quite categorical about the fact that it used um, the kind of a cat kind of classifications of mental disorder. So in the way that it was, it questioned um, or kind of diagnosed young people, and then reported on the statistics of prevalence of um, different kinds of disorder. It was using a, a classification system um, for mental disorders. Whereas, for instance, on a, a report about young people's well-being, it might be more kind of questions of kind of young people's self-perceptions of their their image or their identity, for instance, or, or self-reported happiness scales, for instance. Which is a really different thing. I, th- it's, I it's think it's extremely it difficult. Yeah. It's very, very different. So mm-hmm. kind of, you know, a mental disorder, as you said, it's, it's starting to be a bit more medicalised. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you're thinking more about things like, yes, anxiety and depression, yeah. but presumably things that are, have to be medically treated mm-hmm. and also much more serious things like schizophrenia, for example. Yeah. Um, so things that would be much more recognised and very clearly defined as mental illnesses, mm. whereas, um, you know, as you said, about well-being, I think you can not have great well-being and and not have a mental disorder, mm. for example. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, mm. and as you said, I, I don't feel that in the, the kind of spaces that we generally come across, people often talk about mental disorders that much. No, it's much more about. Uh, kind of well-being and so on which is also important mm. and I suppose off the back of that what struck me is that the findings from this report which uh, I think has a more kind of uh, clinical kind of diagnosis driven understanding of mental health coming from a mental health perspective had very similar findings to other reports that have come out this year on young people's self-reported well-being um, even though I think in some ways they're quite distinct concepts. They clearly tap into something similar, and the trends were the trends were really similar. So, for instance, um, this report, as others on well-being have reported earlier this year, um, there's something quite frightening that appears to happen with 
um, girls' mental health, girls' well-being, likewise, as they get older in particular. Um, so young women aged 17 to 19 were twice, so a quarter of young women aged 17 to 19, that's twice as likely as young men um, to have a mental illness, mainly anxiety and depression. So there are some really clear disparities, um, particularly between girls and boys. Mental illness is this report identified as much worse amongst LGBT teenagers as well. And likewise, when you ask young people about their, their well-being, there are similar really, really, really big disparities in the reported well-being of young people who are LGBT as well. And so those, those sorts of findings were really chimed with, with other findings that I've read on well-being. I think, um, so what it's making me think about is two things in terms of health. So if we talk about physical health, um, mm. we're familiar with a concept of there are some kind of um, issues that people face in terms of physical health that are, you know, more like kind of genetic disorders or um, chronic disorders or things that uh, are not really to do with people's environment or lifestyle. They don't have much impact on whether they're going to get it or not. Mm. But there are also a, a massive um, subset of uh, physical illnesses that are a result of other things around. So, you know, if you play sport, you might be more likely to break something, for example, mm. or... Um, if you eat particular types of food, you're more likely to do have a particular thing. And I don't think that we often talk about the similar, um, like the parallel case for mental illness as well. Mm. So there are some things that uh, you may have as a mental illness that it's nothing really to do with anything you've done or mm. your environment. It's just, you just have it. Um, whereas there are a significant number of things, like say a lot of mood disorders, for example, you said about anxiety and depression, mm. where actually people's environment does affect it and they are much more likely. So the kind of things that will impact a young person or any person's well-being are also the kind of things that would later have uh, greater indicators for a more serious mental disorder or mm. illness. So you know, if I'm thinking about LGBT young people, um, it might, it's probably not anything inherent in them being LGBT, but it's more to do with how uh, society views them um, and their experiences at school, perhaps, or with their families, um, and the kind of things like feelings of isolation, that sort of thing, that can be for some mm. people. Um, or bullying, or various other things uh, that we know they're much more likely to face. Mm. And then those things are, your, if you have those, you're at much greater risk of developing a mental illness for example mm. and like I was reading over the weekend uh, an article that was saying that say for example young people who have experienced any kind of childhood trauma however you're choosing to define that are something ridiculous it was like it was a significant I want to say like 3,000 times but it was something it was something shocking more likely to um attempt suicide basically mm. um, than the general populace mm. uh, so looking at how lifestyle factors and environmental factors can affect mental uh, illness mm. it's interesting yeah and it's something that, that surprised me was that rates of self-harm are much higher amongst um, girls than they are amongst boys um, but this I suppose that this it this is where it really depends what age groups you're looking at. And this report, as, as have others I've read, really flagged the importance of looking at particular age groups. And when you talk about umbrella young people, often that, that masks really significant differences that emerge over time or where you know, trends are flipped. Um, 
but you know, we know that there's a particular issue with suicide rates amongst young men, but actually self-harming is far more prevalent, prevalent amongst young women. Um, and so there's some really kind of complicated nuances in there. Um, I think it's, in some ways, some of these findings continue to be kind of depressingly unsurprising. Like you're saying, you know, looking at kind of LGBT young people and their experiences at places like, like, like school, but broader society, really. It's not, it's not too difficult to see why their mental health is probably going to be worse and their self-reported well-being is going to be worse. Um, and, it, you know, this is the most recent piece of evidence that things aren't really shifting um, at any kind of pace. And I think that's really that's really sad and really, really worrying because in, with these research findings, as with any research findings about young people, you're talking about you know, the beginnings of someone's life, the stage at which they're forming their identities and getting a sense of uh, the extent to which the people around them and the society they're in um, kind of accepts and loves them. And I think it's, it's just really sad when you read this sort of thing and think, you know, by the time they get to the age of uh, their late teenage years, so many young people are still you know, their mental health and their well-being is being really severely impacted on by society's response to, to them and the key, part, key aspects of their identity. Yeah, definitely. And, um, like, one thing that made me feel pretty sad when I was looking through our notes was about the um, five to ten-year-olds. You kind of think it's mm. a shame that you have to think of children so young as having significant, you know, mental disorders. Mm. Uh, and, of course, they do because they're people like everybody else. Yeah. But their patterns are kind of shifted, mm. um, but with behavioural disorders being... The issue for them, mm. um, and it's you know it's kind of sad that they that's when they should just be enjoying their lives, right? Yeah, <laughs> particularly, particularly young boys. This report's quite interesting because it goes into the earlier, so it looks at preschool young people, um, preschool kids, um, and boys here um, are more likely to have mental disorders as this report classifies them. Um, but we know that kind of the general mental health picture then switches round. Um, so by the time you're looking at late teenage years. Young, young women are presenting with far more mental health problems than, than young men. Mm. So again, things can, the, the trends can be flipped. Also, you know what we were talking about a little bit earlier about environmental factors and how that can affect health and how we are aware of that for physical stuff, but it's not always spoken about that much for mental things. I noticed in some of the notes talking about the link between poverty and poor mental health. So yeah. can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there's a really strong link between poverty and poor mental health. Um, so this report uh, classified it in terms of households where a parent's receiving an income or a disability-related benefit. Um, it, it overlaps to some extent with um, what we know about the links between um, poverty and SEND. There's a really high correlation between, between those two, and it can um, it's a particularly kind of it's a particularly worrying correlation, um, and the, the causality is the causality is complicated. But it can lead to situations where young people who need more support are often in situations where they're less likely or able to receive that support. Mm. Um, so is it chicken and egg? So, are people who are poor more likely to have mental illness and SEND, as you mentioned, or are people who have SEND issues more likely to be poor? Do you see what I mean? It can certainly lead, so later in life we know that there's an economic disadvantage to having um, SEND at school because tr transitions to the labour market, for instance, are so much poorer for that group of young people. Mm. So definitely over time there's a real chicken and egg, um, or there's, you know, there's multiple 
multiple causation going on between both, so the disadvantage can kind of repeat itself and, and be compounded. So I think um, that's an interesting one, mm. because uh, obviously we're talking about people pretty much at the start of their lives, mm. and in some ways we're starting to tap into the generational effects of these things. Yeah. So you know, your parents may be more likely to be in poverty because X, Y, Z, mm. and then as a result, you're more likely to have a mental illness and it kind of the cycle mm. continues, which is, uh, yeah, a shame. Like, um, obviously, <laughs> this is not something that we can solve in two seconds, but what are your thoughts around um, you know, what kind of things we should be looking at to try and improve these things or where, as researchers, we can look and see what might make a difference? I mean, I was talking to um, a street stall in my in my hometown um, the other weekend. There were some some CAMS workers, so child and adolescent mental health service workers, who were just um, just the, the latest in a in a line of CAMS workers that I've spoken to in the last year, describing how the service is being cut to the bone. I was going to say, you still got any? <laughs> wow. Yeah, there, yeah, there still are some, but there are far too few of them. Yeah. Um, and and you don't hear many positive things being said about them by local schools, for instance, because they're because they've been cut to the bone. They're no longer as responsive or as you yeah, know so capable stretched. as they need to be. They're, they're too stretched. Um, I mean, really, that just seems to me to be an obvious obvious place to start. Precisely why we think it's a good idea to be cutting those sorts of services to the bone. I don't really understand. And you're saying you know, the the knock on effects of cuts like that are are absolutely huge. Um, it's not something that schools can be expected to. Schools don't have the expertise to um, to deal with this. Um, they need the support of specialist services. So that would that's not really a research based recommendation. It's just I think a kind of um, common sense really. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So our final bit of research is um, mm. depression of key stage three one assessments in primary schools. So this is some uh, analysis from. Um, education data lab mm. uh, tell me where you chose it please so this is a few years old now um, so it's kind of from the archives um, from the, the education data lab but basically it's an entirely uh, selfish piece to look at because I've been um, choosing schools for my daughter so obviously <laughs> uh, that, that weird combination of meeting her teachers walking around schools to get a feel for places and then going home and not being able to resist the temptation to crunch some data, which is a bit sad. Um, it's why we love you, Sam. It's why we love yeah, you. Yeah, it's why I'm not. I'm not allowing that to skew my picture of schools too much. I, you know, I, as it happens, I do think it's far more important to form an impression of a school and get a sense of the kind of culture it has. You know? Yeah, we chose we chose our kids' school and culture actually. So, and it's right. not our nearest primary school, but um, mm. we the the one nearest us was also pretty good. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely the feel that we got going around the place yeah. that, that sold it for us. Yeah, I think it ma- that matters a lot. Mm. And links back to uh, one of our previous cultures. podcasts on cultures and practices. <laughs> hey. But I did, I did have that report in mind as I went around these schools. And it's, it's fascinating how you know conducting a piece of research can then change the way you, you look at the world around you. But I did do a little bit of looking at data. And one thing I realised, so where I live there's still lots of infant and junior schools alongside primary oh, really? schools. Yeah, so, you know, until a couple of years ago, I didn't even know that there was an alternative, just, you know, a primary school where you go from reception through to year six. But in some parts of the country, there are still junior, uh, infant schools where you go for... So uh, is that up until year two? Year right? two, yeah. Yep. So you do reception year one and year two in an infant school. And then you go to a junior school to do year four, uh, three, four, five and six. 
Um, so basically Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2 get split and you go to two different places. There are various fascinating debates about which system works best, but where we are, it's sort of schools are tending to merge together. So I feel like over time, most most of the infant and junior schools are gradually merging to become primaries. Yeah, because I used to, in the borough that I used to live in, we had, um, when I was a kid, uh, primary, middle and high schools. Mm. So it was similar, but I can't remember when middle school started, but they used to go up until yes. Seven, I think, is how it used to be in the borough that I was in. Okay, um, and yeah. They got rid- I think Bedfordshire still has middle schools, actually. Yeah, we've, we had some middle schools where I live as well until recently, and that's that's yet another... You end up with lots of schools now who've converted from middles to primaries who've got lots of empty classrooms mm. because they lost year seven and year eight. And it's like, hi, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's it, um, there are these kind of... These concrete rem- reminders of what system change can do to you know do to individual schools and mm. individual places. Um, you've got schools sometimes struggling with all the things that schools that schools struggle with, alongside becoming a completely different type of school, dealing with a different number of pupils and yeah. different age range. Um, but I, so there seems to be I kind of it looked a bit it looked a bit funny to me, and then I did, did a bit more reading, and actually the Department for Education themselves say that you can't directly compare the progress schools of junior schools and primary schools so they just say they say when you're looking at the performance data don't try to draw comparisons between the two so basically for some time junior schools have been have claimed that it's harder for them to make good progress at key stage two with pupils than it is for primary schools to make good progress at key stage two because uh, key stage one assessments are, are teacher assessed so at the end of infant school, kids will get a key stage one assessment, and that's like almost like an outcome measure for infant schools because they have their key stage one teacher assessment, then they leave. So it's kind of like a so they're more likely to over right. So junior schools are saying that they that they receive pupils from infant schools where they've been overgraded by teachers oh. because there's an incentive for teachers at infant schools to say they've left us with a really good school. Of course, juniors then it's for harder for them to make good progress at key stage two because you're starting from a higher baseline. Um, whereas a primary, um, it's not an outcome measure. So primary school teachers don't have that same incentive to kind of to boost that. Um, this research is really useful because what it says is, uh, it, what it wants to look at is whether the issue is inflation by infant schools or deflation by primary schools. So primary schools saying, well, if you know, we've got power over the key stage one teacher assessment and it's our baseline measure, so we've got an incentive to kind of to be quite um, mean about the scores we give our kids so we can then make tons of progress at Key Stage 2. And actually it's the latter that's true, not the former. Um, what's quite cool about this, there's various bits of analysis in here, but it's a nice one of going back in time to when it used to be um, uh, externally marked tests and then switched to being teacher assessed and therefore introduced the, the incentive, the, the incentive yeah. to, and the, the ability to game the system. Um, and what you see, broadly speaking, is that infant school marks stay broadly the same, but primary school marks start to go down. Um, so just in a single graph, it shows that while you know, junior schools are right to say that they make it... On, in general, it's harder for them to make progress with their kids. Like I'm looking at the graph now, actually. They're, they're pointing their finger at the wrong, the wrong people. It's not the fault of the infant schools. It's, it's the fault of the primary. So this is interesting because it got me thinking about, you know how now there's a... I don't know the proportion of them, but there's a number of all-through schools. Mm. So that take kids from, or well, nursery, I'm guessing, 
up until the end of secondary school and possibly mm. even beyond. So um, I'm wondering if there was a similar analysis, say, uh, of key, not key stage three results, but key stage two results, I should say, mm. um, in all three schools versus primary schools as well, if, you, if you'd see a mm. similar thing. Actually, it'd be interesting to see. Is key stage two teacher assessed? Just trying to remember now. Mm. Uh, no, you don't have to send it off for something. I think it's sent off now, mm. but I could be wrong. So I guess anything that's going to be sent off to be externally marked, you're not going to get the same... There, I mean, there are other ways of... Um, for instance, we know at GCSE, which is all externally marked, um, the papers, you can still gain by kind of putting pupils in for different exams or putting pupils in for easier yeah. exam boards or that. That used to be, that used to be quite a big problem. Um, but in terms of actually you know, deflating the marks that you're giving on teacher assessments, I don't know if there's any mm. other points points in the system where that's going to be no. a particular problem or not. No, I think you're right. So if Key Stage 2, I'd have to check, um, if Key Stage 2 uh, were internally assessed, then it would be interesting to see that. And yeah, if not, then you wouldn't see, as you're saying, there's, there's no incentive really, so it probably wouldn't notice it mm. if it isn't. Um, mm. But yeah. I mean, these the similar debates came up when the reception baseline debate was taking place a couple of years ago. Um, about you know incentives there. So, so what is what is a baseline for? Is it um, a at all for whoever's going to be picking up at the next phase of education to to learn more about um, you know uh, individual people, what they're doing well at, what they're struggling with, what you know what needs they might have, um, or is it essentially the, the starting point for an accountability measure? Yeah, exactly. Is it a hey, performance, performance measure, which is not really supposed to be, but these things <clears throat> right. always turn into that, right? Yeah, of course, it's going to be interpreted that way. And that's going to look different depending on you know how many how many different people are involved in that young person's education and things like all through schools I suppose could could really change that. But but I'm, it's taught me it's yet another reason not to look too closely at data. So in a way it was a it was a handy reminder for me to kind of close the laptop and just go and do some more school visits. <laughs> so put, put the laptop away, Sam. Put it away. <laughs> put it away. <laughs> Like, Daddy, why are you on the laptop? Come and take me around the school. <laughs> Absolutely. It's all right. It's okay, Sam. We know you're going to geek out. It's no big deal. It's fine. <laughs> so are you any closer to making a decision about school? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I, um, you guys I can't chosen. reveal which way we're moving, but I, at the moment, uh, a school which on paper would definitely not be a front runner has become the front runner because of because the, the, the head and because of the culture and what I've seen. We're going to go back and see it again, but it's been it's been really fascinating going through this process as a parent, being yeah. entirely really selfish um, and trying to kind of channel everything I've learnt in this role about the education system, about schools. And some of it's been really useful. A lot of it I've just put to one side. And as apparently you did, you think, well, do I want my child to be here at this school? Yeah. Um, and sometimes that might mean that you go for a school where, you know, on paper things don't look all that great at all. We basically chose ours based on the head. Mm. So um, we both, we went to a few different schools and one of them was fine. Um, And then, you know, so the schools nearest us are all good or outstanding. Mm. Um, We didn't go for the outstanding school actually, as it happened. Uh, Mm. We went for one that was kind of rated good, but got a really good vibe from the head teacher. Um, we knew a few parents who went there and their children were very happy there. Mm. Um, 
and it's a primary school, so for us it was kind of basic stuff, but also you want them to enjoy school. That's the most important thing at this stage, because if they're turned off from school now, yeah. you almost can't ever get it back. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so our son's in year... What's he in now? Three? Mm. Four? Uh, and the girls are in year one, and definitely seems to be the right decision. Like they're very, mm. very happy there. No, Whereas on paper, it might have been... It, there was no reason why it should be this school over the other school on paper. Mm. But when we actually went round and got talking to the head, and, we, and there's a few other people who were like, yeah, we looked at that other school and it was okay, but weren't so in love yeah. with the head, whereas this head we really brought into the vision and stuff. Yeah. So. And, you know, hey, if their average point scores takes a little bit of a knock, but they're, like, happier, more rounded kids, I think I'm pretty sure which I'd rather have. Yeah, well, um, later on they're going to do fine, aren't they? Well, later on yeah. it's better for them to be to yeah. be happier, as we talked about going back to kind of the first or second piece of research that we were talking about yeah. in some respects. So, yeah, yeah the, the, early, the early stuff really counts. Um, so, yeah, it's... Will um, I, I can reveal all in in January? Voted, but yeah, it's uh, it's been a fascinating process to go through as a parent. But it's made me understand new things about data that I didn't know about before. That's it. You didn't know. Uh, oh, there's, there's something of, you didn't know. Tons of things I don't know. That's what? why I'm always opening up the laptop. <laughs> <laughs> That's you on the laptop. <laughs> All right, Sam, um, thanks very much for those uh, really interesting pieces of research, and uh, we will catch up again soon. Thanks, Aisha. Bye. Hey, people, I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Free. Review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.